It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you, as always. And you can join us during the week on Fox Business. Name of the show is Kudlow. Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. I took yesterday off, heaven forbid. Anyway, 4 to 5 p.m. And here... You can get us, you can live stream us on the internet all across the country. Just go to LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, all across the country and around the world and throughout the solar system. And I want to talk about a different angle uh, regarding this Donald Trump, this outrageous attack and invasion and raid on Mar-a-Lago. I mean, we're going to talk about that. We got Andy McCarthy coming on later in the show. And the magistrate judge delivered a setback to the Justice Department on Thursday and said, wait a minute, you can't keep everything secret. You're going to have to open up parts of your affidavit. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how that's going to work. It seemed like it was a setback for the Justice Department. The whole thing's an outrage. But, you know, I want to go back. Look, we are predominantly an economic show even though I love to engage in politics, and I myself have served two administrations under Reagan and Trump. But I want to make this point. You know, the assault on Trump by the Biden administration, the Justice Department ordering the FBI to do what it did, this outrageous invasion of Mar-a-Lago, for what reason we don't know, I think it's to stop him from running for president. But putting all that aside, they have, the Bidens have, assaulted Trump's economy and economic policies from day one. From day one, when they stopped the XL pipeline, uh, I think uh, Biden may have signed that remanding order, I don't know, in the first hour of his presidency. And it's really a pity how the economy has sunk in the last 20 months as Biden has tried to unwind Trump's free market capitalism, his tax cuts, his deregulation, his energy independence. Those were the bulk of it, particularly particularly the effective, successful corporate tax cut and the deregulation of uh, large and small businesses. But as Biden has tried to unwind that and substitute his brand of big government socialism with this insane uh, insane obsession of climate change, America has paid a heavy price for it. In other words, what I'm saying, folks, is it's not only the encroachment into Mr. Trump's privacy. And, of course, they tried to overturn his presidency from day one with impeachment over Russia, impeachment over Ukraine. The January 6th committee is really a third impeachment. This could be a fourth impeachment for all we know. But my point is we paid a heavy price for the reversal of Trump's pro-growth economic policies. I mean, for example... 
And some of this was unwound. Now, the corporate tax cut, a little bit of it was unwound. Not all of it. They couldn't, they couldn't raise the rates. From, but dropping the top corporate rate from 35 to 21 and providing 100% immediate expensing and permitting overseas offshore multinational cash to come home at a, at a reduced tax rate of whatever, 10 to 12%. You know, that stuff worked. It paid for itself, number one, in budget revenue terms, and then some. Over a trillion dollars of money came back on shore. Companies paid out bonuses, increased wages, inequality fell, poverty fell, minority unemployment fell. You're talking 50, 60-year lows in many cases, the economy growing 3 4% at one point before the goofball Fed started to come in and tighten up because the Fed was worried about growth, which is a big mistake. The bottom end of the wage scale had a bigger increase, a bigger pay hike than the top end of the wage and salary scale. We forget this stuff. I guess we forget it because the Bidens and the mass media want us to forget it, but I don't want to forget it. I was a participant in those policies way back during the campaign in 2015, 2016, and also as director of the National Economic Council in 2018, 2019, 2020, and early 21. But my point is the Bidens have in their manic, obsessive, far-left attacks on Donald Trump have done great damage to our economy. Now, the debate over recession or not recession, I mean, that's an important debate. We're either in a recession or the front end of recession, and we're going to talk about that in a few moments with the former Treasury Department economist, but it's deeper than just a bunch of semantics. In other words, Lower marginal tax rates and the 100% expensing for plant, equipment, technology benefited the middle class just as supply-siders predicted it would. A rising tide lifted all boats. Small businesses benefited. Large businesses benefited. Shareholders benefited. Consumers benefited. Working folks benefited. As I said, not only historic lows in minority unemployment rates and historic increases in typical family incomes. I mean, in a couple of years, average wages after tax, after inflation, average wages went up in a couple of years more than they did during the entire eight years of Obama-Biden. That's how good it was. And we shouldn't forget that because in many ways, in fact, most directly, the outrageous raid on Mar-a-Lago is an outrageous raid on the successes and prosperities of the Trump economic plan. And one of the things his policy showed by 
slashing regulations. For every new regulation, eight were cut. And lower tax rates for large and small businesses. And bringing the money home. And by the way, I want to add a few bells and whistles here. A tough on China trade policy demanding reciprocity, ringing the bell on China as an adversary and an enemy. But the invasion of Mar-a-Lago is an invasion against our economy. The raid on Mar-a-Lago is a raid on the most successful economy since the Reagan years. Let's not forget that. We are not enjoying prosperity right now because of a near 10% inflation rate. And because housing is getting crushed, family incomes are falling after inflation, grocery prices are rising 10, 12%. Gasoline, gasoline has come down a buck. It's hovering around $4. Trump left it at $2. All these issues, inflation, the outlook for the economy has deteriorated markedly. The first half of the year, the GDP fell both quarters. The inflation rate has cooled a wee bit on the gasoline side, but not much. And as I say, food prices still rising in double-digit terms. And services prices are rising. And the basic inflation rate is about 7%. And so wages are rising, but not enough to keep up with inflation. Wages are rising, but not enough to keep up with grocery prices. None of this happened. We didn't have the word inflation during the Trump years. We didn't have that word. Nobody worried about it. We had growth. We had prosperity across the board for all Americans. All Americans. People say Trump was a racist. Really? His economic policies did more for all races, for African Americans, for Hispanic Americans, for Asian Americans, for women, for the young. How could that be racist? He was boosting people up, as I said earlier. To use John F. Kennedy's phrase and Ronald Reagan's phrase, a rising tide was lifting all boats until Joe Biden came in with his phony big government socialist policies to stop fossil fuels, to raise taxes, to re-regulate the economy, to run massive central planning. All this modern monetary theory that has failed, all these woke economic policies that has failed, and here we are, struggling, once again, where we shouldn't be struggling. That's the point I want to make this morning. The invasion against Mar-a-Lago, the raid against Mar-a-Lago, is a raid against Trump's economic policies, his successful economic policies. You follow me, folks? You follow me, kids? It's a very important point I'm trying to make here. They don't want him to run for president again because he'll restore free market capitalism. They don't want him to run for president again because he will store American supremacy and independence and energy. 
which is a national security issue as well as an economic security issue. They don't want him to run for president again because the next go around we'd have even more tax cuts, even more deregulation, even more limits to the power of the federal government in the Washington, D.C. swamp. That's why they don't want him to run. He will take the power away from Washington and send it back to the states where it belongs. Which, by the way, is what Trump's Supreme Court justices did regarding the environment, regarding abortion and right to life, and other matters. That's why they're against him, because he might win. My hunch is if he runs, he would win. I don't know if he's going to run. It's up to him. I know he'd like to. It's up to him. It's his call, not mine. All I'm saying is, I'm not a political person. I'm a policy person. What they fear the most, I think, about Trump is the fact that his policies worked away from Washington, against Washington, free markets, not regulatory strangleholds over the economy. He believed in the incentive model of growth. To quote my dear friend Art Laffer, if it it pays more after tax to work and invest, you will have more work and more investment. But if you tax something more, you'll get less of it. You'll get less work and less investment. That supply-side adage worked. And by the way, producing more goods and services, boosting the supply side of the economy by taking the tax and regulatory shackles off, doing that is counterinflationary. Increasing productivity and real wages. That's a big chunk of what this battle's about. Make no mistake about it. It's not about documents. It's not about presidential records. It's about keeping Trump from running for president again. Yeah. And it's about keeping his free economic policies from coming back because you've got a bunch of socialist regulators running this Biden administration, and unfortunately they are running the economy into the ground. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll take a quick break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great pleasure to be with you. Today's my birthday. (laughs) It's my birthday. I'm not going to tell you. Still 39 years old. That's what Ronald Reagan always said. Still 39 years old. And it's great fun. Great day to be alive. They're all good days to be alive. So, look at... I don't understand so many things about this crazy raid on Mar-a-Lago. I don't understand. I mean, we're going to have the great uh, Andy McCarthy on uh, at the top of the uh, at the top of the next hour. But look at I, if this was so important, if there was nuclear documents and other things that were so vitally important, why did they wait so long? You know, I don't understand that, and it makes me think. It's all phony baloney, and that Joe Biden basically had been pressuring this Merrick Garland, the attorney general, for I don't know how long to do something about Trump, do something about Trump. 
By the way, Trump's polls have gone up since this uh, crazy raid, which is now almost two weeks old. It's gone up. But if it was so important, why did they wait? You know, that's the part I don't get. I guess they had, what did I read today? They had uh, until yesterday, August 19th, um, from the time they had about almost 10 days when the magistrate uh, magistrate magistrate judge allowed him to uh, to make this raid but they really had 20 months what what why did they wait how important is this stuff i mean i am suspicious of their motives okay i admit it openly i am suspicious of their motives I think this was a real put-up job. This whole story. And the fact that Trump cooperated with them and they had perfectly civilized discussions. They're afraid he's going to destroy documents. If he's going to destroy documents, then why did he double-lock his his storage locker? And they're looking for stuff in uh, his wife's wardrobe, I mean, none of this made any sense to me. It still doesn't. And I have a strong suspicion that it doesn't make any sense to the vast majority of American people. I know these far-left Democrats hate Trump and they'll do anything. But really, this is not about documents. This is not about presidential records. This is about January 6th, which in some sense was Trump's third impeachment attempt This was about a politicized FBI, a politicized Justice Department. This is about Joe Biden and his minions trying to do anything they can to possibly stop him from running again in in 2024. And I think this is about also, you know, this is about the midterm elections to distract from the failures of the Biden administration, to subtract to distract from high gasoline prices and high food prices, to distract from the Afghanistan fiasco, which has weakened us around the world, to distract from open borders, to distract from the crime wave, which continues, to distract from parents who want to take back their kids' schools. Isn't that what this is really about? Documents, really? With the word classified on the cover sheet, the government keeps too much secrets anyway. I mean, the use of classification and secrecy is way, way overdone. The late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York wrote a very good book about this several decades ago, Why Uncle Sam is So Obsessed with Secrecy, Where There Is No Need for This Kind of Secrecy. And these leaks, I mean, they should unlock and make transparent these affidavits to show us exactly what they had on their mind. They don't want to show us because of the politicalization of all this. Isn't that what's really at the root of this? I mean, maybe maybe we're going to discover some breathtaking thing, but I doubt it. I doubt it very, very much. Mementos, I don't know, maybe my presidential cufflinks were in there someplace. I lost a pair when I moved. I'm just saying, I just have so many, I I think in a common sense way, putting aside all the legalisms here, 
They could have done this a year ago. They could have done this 18 months ago. And they had the they they had the search warrant in hand, and they didn't even act on it for several days. Really, do we believe this stuff? It's a fishing expedition. But again, I'll come back to my point in the first segment. This whole thing is to stop Trump and his ideas of America first. That's what this is about. You'll never convince me otherwise. If the facts emerge otherwise, I'll be the first guy, but I don't believe it. Anyway, we're going to take a look at the economy Former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury, Michael Falkender, is going to come around. Are we in a recession or not? We've had some pretty poor numbers. I'm Larry Kudlow. I want Trumponomics to come back, okay? That's my bottom line. Give us Trumponomics, give us prosperity, and give us peace. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. We're going to talk to Michael Falkender who is a professor of finance at the University of Maryland. He was the assistant secretary of the Treasury for economic policy during the Trump years. Uh, Michael, thank you. I know you're in between classes, so it's very kind of you. Absolutely. It's great to be with you, Larry. How much time you got? You got 15 minutes, 16 minutes? <laughs> what do you got? Yes, I, I don't want to... my, my class is eagerly awaiting uh, getting back, but they're, I think they're more than happy to have a break. <laughs> okay, I don't want to screw that up. So just um, the health of the economy or the lack thereof, and there are two numbers that jumped out at me this past week. Uh, and You were on the show, and we talked about, it, I think, maybe one of them. First one is uh, existing home sales have fallen six consecutive months, and I would add, as you well know, uh, housing starts have been falling pretty badly too. The other one uh, doesn't get as much attention, but is a very useful indicator is the index of leading indicators for the economy, which have fallen five consecutive months. Now, I read into that that there's really uh, you know, a very pervasive weakness. I know the GDP tracker from the Atlanta Fed, Mike, is 1.6 for the third quarter. That's July's numbers, essentially. July might have been a little better than um, than June, but what's the what's the overall outlook, and where's this thing trending? You know, Larry, I guess the one other number I would throw in there that to me is really part of the leading indicators is consumer sentiment, and that number has fallen off a cliff. Right, it's mm-hmm. the lowest that it's been in in fifty years that they have been conducting this survey, and generally, if consumers are feeling apprehensive. Even if they've got money in their bank accounts, they're going to be less likely to go out there and be spending it. And so that's the disconnect I think we've seen with some of the numbers recently. You've got a robust jobs market, and yet you've got consumers that are saying they're more frightened than they've been in in the 50-year history of this survey. And so a lot of that is the uncertainty associated with, with inflation, the rising interest rate environment that's just clobbering housing, you know, as you said down to the last six months, housing sales are down 17% relative to a year ago. And so, and, and that's all showing up in, in the leading indicators. So it, it seems like, you know, people are pulling back, uh, uh, rising prices of food in particular, but also shelter are causing people to pull back and, you know, not spend that money that's sitting in those savings accounts, even though savings is at a pretty high level still. Um. The drop in confidence, is that a function of falling real wages? 
certainly, right? I mean, if, if you're seeing that your wages are uh, 3%, if your wage growth is 3% lower than, than price growth, that's going to certainly cause you to, to pull back. I mean, you know, I, I know the Biden administration uh, likes to take credit sometimes for the wage growth that we're seeing and it being a much higher level than what we've seen in many years. But when households are losing 3% on an annualized basis in their purchasing power, they're going to tend to pull back, hold more in savings as, as concern over whether this is going to continue, right? Because it's not just that they've already absorbed a 3% loss in consumer power, how much more are they going to lose as this inflation continues to, to con- increase and that their wages continue to not keep up? Um, Michael, how, how, how important are food prices? You know, um, most of the attention has been on gas prices. Gas prices are down about a buck, um, still almost twice what they were um, two years ago. But food prices are still roaring ahead. And some economists, you know, economists, we always debate what's the most important thing. What, but the fact is, food prices are an important indicator of inflation. Uh, they're rising at a double-digit pace. No relief in sight, best I can tell. So, what does that mean? Well, so it's two things. Number one, it's you know, you can cut back on the amount of gasoline you consume. You can you know, go on shorter vacations. Uh, we've seen that people can telework more hard to cut back on food right i mean people still have families that they need to feed and you can go to less expensive food items but there's there's real concern about there about people being able to put enough food on the table for their families and then the second thing is i keep reminding people that the impacts of of ukraine and russia are not fully realized yet in the global food chain mm. right so Part of that is the grains, but part of it also is the fertilizer loss. And so we've got other areas of the global economy that are reliant upon fertilizer that are having trouble obtaining it, and that has implications for future food supply. And that's why I think, you know, commensurate with what you just said, I think food inflation food inflation is going to continue because of these supply chain issues on things like fertilizer. Food prices up. In the CPI, Mike, uh, 10.9% for the past 12 months, 13.9% at an annual rate for the past three months. So it looks like they're accelerating. And yeah. I want to add one other point here. Um, on the inflation front, services prices up 6.2% last 12 months, but up 8.1% annually at the last three months. Uh, that's got to be another warning. And, and finally, on the inflation front, uh, you probably – glance from time to time at the Cleveland Fed, their median CPI, and their, you know, trend mean they chop off the top eight and they chop off the bottom eight. Now, that thing's gone up and up and up. It's up 7%. Uh, in other words, people are saying, Wall Street is saying we've seen peak inflation. I, I don't know. Have we seen peak inflation? Well, you know, that's part of the issue that I've had with the way that the Biden administration is a lot of this is that they've tried to say it's localized or it's it's primarily in the energy space, except that if you look at the various components of inflation, it's widespread. Mm-hmm. You know, it's across all different categories of prices. And, you know, what's been, I think, one of the most interesting things is that the part that's been the lowest has actually been medical care inflation. That's where we've seen the lowest increases, but it's on 
on food, it's on shelter, it's on gasoline, um, that you and on services, like you just said, that you're really seeing the increases. And the part that one gets concerned about services is that services are going to be primarily labor, right? And so are is this an indication of that wage price spiral that has always been the concern of whether or not the Fed can keep this under control? If you get into a wage price spiral, you know, you just get these um, more Inflation begets more wage increases, which gets more inflation. And can the Fed, has the Fed lost control on that? Wall Street thinks the Fed's bluffing. It's an interesting paradigm. Stocks, not so much this week, not so much yesterday, but stocks have had a very good run uh, since the middle of June. Some people think it's a bear market rally. Uh, I, I don't know if that's the case or not, but, 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 um, the theory here is the Fed is going to slow down their rate hikes and next year is going to cut rates. Now, that's a triumph of hope over experience, in my view. But uh, is the Fed bluffing or do you think the Fed can be relied on to stomp out the inflation? I think the Fed is bluffing. And as you just said, the market's interest rate, uh, the yield curve and the in- the yield curve suggests that they are that they think the Fed is bluffing. As you just said, the market is pricing in a rate decline next year. If inflation is going to be persistent for the reasons that we just talked about, then a, 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 a hawkish Fed would not be thought of as coming in with a rate decline next year. And so the fact that the yield curve is as flat as it, as it is suggests to me that the market is not taking the Fed seriously, and I would like to see um, not just Chairman Powell, but some of the other governors go out there and make stronger statements about their willingness to ride out some of the effects that may accompany pretty strong interest rate policy. I mean, fundamentally, Larry, as we've talked about before, the issue is that they were a year late. Yeah. Right. We saw we saw prices start to take off yeah. in March of 2021. The idea that you're going to wait until March of 2022 to do something about it, 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 they allowed it to get out of control. And that then affects people's not just their sentiment, but their expectations of future inflation. And once you get inflation expectations unhinged, then it's really hard to get them back unless you come out with very aggressive words and action. And the fact that we're already talking about potentially curtailing the rate increases from 75 down to 50 and saying, you know, we're going to wait and see, and it, it does not give reassurance that there is a determination to get it, to get inflation under control. I mean, th- this to me does not follow the Volcker model. You know, speaking of the Volcker model, um, I don't know if you know Bob Heller, Robert Heller, who, who was a Fed governor during the Volcker era, the Reagan appointee. Uh, he's been on this show a couple of times. He's saying kind of what you're saying, that the Fed is going to slack off, and that's going to lead to a double-dip recession. Now, we had one in the first half of this year with two straight GDP declines. Uh, things might look slightly better, but they're going to have to come back next year and be even tougher because they haven't taken the inflation down to 2%. I mean, a double-dip recession would be, I mean, it'd be very bad for the economy, very bad for ordinary folks, but that's the risk here. I mean, you know, they'll pay the piper now or they're going to pay the piper later. 
That's right. And then, you know, couple that with the fact that we're not seeing supply inducements coming out of the administration on either fiscal or regulatory policy. We're seeing constant efforts to increase the amount of, of bureaucratic requirements that just raise prices for consumers without raising you know, productivity at all. If you have more and more time spent by companies satisfying additional regulatory guidance and taking supply out of production activities towards compliance activities, that's not going to allow you to kind of bring supply on to match this artificially high demand that we've been seeing from all this excessive stimulus. This thought that we can just rely upon the Fed to curb demand and have no supply response. You know, one of our one of our colleagues, uh, Jim Carter, was saying, you know, it's kind of like having the Biden administration's foot on the gas while the Fed has got its foot on the brakes mm. and they're just, you know, they're just fighting each other rather than acting in concert. And that was what I thought worked so effectively for us during the Trump administration is that we had fiscal, regulatory, and monetary policy all working simultaneously towards a sustainable level of demand with increasing supply that facilitated higher GDP growth, real wage increases, and low inflation. Darren, the Bidens, their supply policies, they're anti-supply-siders. That's what I want to say. They're anti-supply-siders. Or, or they don't think about the supply side. And whether it's energy, but it's not just energy. Their overall regulatory policies have been strangling business. Um, the biggest game, well, what did I see, Mike? Uh, in Biden's first year, he had 40 times the regulatory increases that Trump had in his first year, 40 times. That's right. I mean, and think about whereas our rule was for every new rule, you had to take two off the books. Right. Right. It's just a, and so, you know, some of the work that CEA did early on in the administration talked about the increase in growth merely from not continuing the regulatory onslaught of the Obama administration. So, right. so not even taking away regulations, but if we just stop adding regulations, right, that's 0.2% a year of GDP. And whereas the, under the Biden administration, there's this seemingly this view that the regulators were, you know, kind of muffled for four years. And so they've, with a vengeance, brought back, brought out all of these regs that they just had been wanting to do and didn't. And it's just regulatory over, overdrive. What um, What's this uh, mansion Schumer Act going to do to the economy? Well, according to the estimates that came out from CBO, it looks like over the first five years, it it adds to deficits. So that's, it's always striking to see you know them making claims about deficit reduction when it actually adds to the deficits over the first five years. And of course, what that means is that if you got extra fiscal spending going into an economy while simultaneously curtailing demand, or sorry, curtailing supply because you've got promises of tax increases, you know, all of the economics classes I've ever taught says that if we we subsidize demand and we bring supply off the market, we're just going to exacerbate the price increases, and yet they call it the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm. So it seems like it's just going to exacerbate some of the shortages and price increases that we've been observing. 
and simultaneously it takes us from reliable, low-cost sources of energy and moves us towards unreliable, high-cost sources of energy, which just increases the cost structure across the board, makes us less internationally competitive. And when you see the energy activity of other countries, it doesn't seem like we're on that going to actually alter the environment. So let's have no environmental impact, raise costs, make us less wealthy, and think that that's going to improve the outcomes for the American people. Yeah, we're penalizing our energy resources that we have here, and we're subsidizing energy resources that that are abroad. Or put it another way, we're killing the U.S., but we're helping China. I mean, China's the key to electric vehicles. China's the key to uh, solar. China's the key to renewables. We don't have it, and we're helping them, not us. Right. And then supposedly the big get that Senator Manchin got for his vote was that we were going to do some permitting changes so that we could increase mining uh, of some of these materials domestically and that we could maybe review some of the NEPA process. And, you know, all of those tea leaves coming out of Congress are that that's going to go nowhere. So if you got a promise on a vote, certainly not a promise that anything's going to happen. You know, if we could create those resources domestically by opening up mining, opening up drilling, um, that would be one thing. But as you said, if instead what we're doing is just making ourselves even more reliant on China, then that seems to put us in a more precarious position from a national security standpoint. One would have thought that seeing what happened to Central Europe by becoming more dependent on Russia, that we would learn from that and not become more reliant on China. And yet that seems to be what this bill is doing. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. Michael Falkender, I'm going to let you go back and teach school. You're awful nice to give us time here on Saturday morning. We appreciate it, buddy. We'll talk soon. Thanks very much. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back and talk a little more about the economy. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. So it's just kind of interesting that this bill, this uh, Manchin-Schumer bill, is damaging our homegrown resources, namely fossil fuels, which I might add are the cleanest in the world, the cleanest oil, the the cleanest natural gas, and actually the cleanest coal. Coal's not my favorite. Nat gas is my favorite. But we are penalizing our fossil fuel industry, and we are rewarding China's renewables industry. I mean, that's kind of like it. That's what the Wall Street Journal editorial said this morning. I'm just poking through my... We're going to have Frank Macchiarola from the American Petroleum Institute on in a little while, but the Inflation Reduction Act's winners and losers. Schumer Manchin is a renewables above all bill. Fossil fuels lost big. The bill's $370 billion in climate spending provides a panoply of tax credits for wind, solar, carbon capture, hydrogen, biofuels, critical minerals, sustainable aviation fuel, green energy manufacturing, battery storage, among other things. Renewable subsidies have already caused an oversupply of solar and wind which are driving out coal and nuclear and some gas-fired, not gas-fired plants 
that prove reliable baseload power. You know, this baseload power idea is so important. Baseload power, in other words, stuff that is reliable and sustainable, right? Not what's happened in Texas, not what's happened in California, not brownouts, not blackouts, not what's happened here in New York and the Northeast, which hates fossil fuels and has done everything it can to stop fossil fuels. In fact, New York State, I mean, New York State just bungled everything. New York State, we could have been like Pennsylvania. You know, southwestern part of New York is in the Marcellus Shale. Pennsylvania allowed the fracking and the pipelining. New York State did not. One governor after another. Andrew Cuomo had plenty of chances to open up, and he wouldn't do it. So we pay high gasoline prices, high home heating fuel prices. We have brownouts. We have blackouts. They've stopped the nuclear. Now they've eased up on the nuclear because they're desperate, I guess. But the fact is wholesale power prices skyrocket when renewables generate less power than expected. You can't capture wind all the time. And also, by the by, true environmentalists, not climate change fanatics, but people who worry about our environment, our land, you know, these wind farms are devastating. You have to carve up, destroy the earth, kills birds. Anybody cares about birds? I care about birds. My saintly wife cares about birds. She's always feeding birds around here in the country. Anyway, these are some of the problems with this Manchin-Schumer bill. It doesn't do anything for growth. It's against growth. The bill's against growth. The bill raises taxes, raises energy costs, raises health care costs. There's no inflation reduction whatsoever. They're not even using that anymore, are they? They're not even talking about inflation. It's now being referred to as a... As a um, as a climate change health care bill. They've left off the inflation reduction because all the models have shown there isn't going to be any inflation. There isn't going to be any deficit reduction, as Mike Falkinger said a few moments ago. It's just a terrible idea. And it is part of the assault against capitalism. There's no free market incentives here. There's no supply side incentives here. There's no deregulatory incentives here. Really, this is the best we can do. A pathetic bill. And my concern is I love prosperity. I love growth. I think all policies should be aimed at growth. This bill is anti-growth. It may not be as bad as the original $5 trillion Build Back Better, but it is anti-growth. It is anti-free market capitalism. It is anti-business. It is anti-fossil fuels. It is exactly what this country does not need. And I fear that in the next year or two, until the cavalry comes, we're going to be in for some rough times. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to take a quick break. And on the other side of the break, we're going to talk to Andy McCarthy about this Mar-a-Lago raid fiasco. I'm Kudlow. Please stay with us. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's great to be with you. We bring in our good friend, Andrew McCarthy. 
former District U.S. Attorney, Southern District of New York, contributing editor of National Review, and uh, his latest book is called Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy McCarthy, thank you for helping us as you have. You've been fabulous, by the way. Can I just tell you that throughout all of the Fox shows you've done, ours and the others and this radio show, you have been terrific during this uh, bizarre period. So thank you for that. Thank you so much, Larry. I appreciate that. I wish it wasn't uh, necessary to have to uh, well, go through I know. stuff. But it, yeah. I know. I know. You know, I get, I get to the office, uh, was it Thursday mid-afternoon, early afternoon, and and so this latest decision, they're going to unlock something. I don't know. We'll talk about that in a minute. And I said, well, we got breaking news. <laughs> get Andy McCarthy. Unfortunately, you were there, so you helped us show. By the way, that show had good ratings, so whatever. Well, <laughs> so, that's me. I'm the ratings grabber, Larry. You are. The secret, the, the secret sauce. You're the key ratings guys. Come to that. So, <laughs> so look at my friend. Um, where does it stand? What, what do you think's going on? And is this, um, you know, federal magistrate judge going to force the Justice Department to give up some information on the affidavit or not? How do you see this? I think they're probably going to use the next few days. Uh, feverishly, whether it's through, uh, you know, their friends in the media or maybe motions for reconsideration. But I think they'll try to get him to change his mind. Uh, he's kind of dug in. And I think probably where it comes out is he'll make them, you know, he'll make them unredact some stuff so that we get some stuff so that he can say he, say he did it. But whether we're actually going to get the stuff that anyone's interested in, like the the basis for the claim that there's probable cause that, you know, there's three crimes that supported the warrant and an explanation for why this had to be done. You know, the, Larry, the most curious thing of all of this is the Justice Department told him, you know, the other day during their first hearing that you can't make us unseal now because we're just at an early stage of our investigation. And I think most people heard that and think, you're at an early stage of the investigation, so you decided to do a search warrant on the home of a former president of the United mm. States. You would think that that would be something you'd do at the end, you know, when all when all else had failed, and then be able to look people in the eye and say, you know, look, we tried, you know, six other ways to do this, and we were unsuccessful, so that at least people could get an understanding of why they did what they did. But the record right now is... You know, they went to DEFCON 5, and they're telling us this was the beginning of their investigation. You know, that's a great point. That's a really important point. Uh, it just shows you, I mean, the, if this stuff is so important and so crucial, why did they wait so long? I mean, now that's, to some extent, all right, here, take your early stage point. Let me try to articulate this. Uh, we're in the early stages so therefore, you would ask, as you just did, why did you go to DEFCON 5 at the early stages? But on the other side, they're saying, um, we've had this long investigation and we can't shed any light on it. We don't want to give you the affidavits for probable cause and names and whatever. You had all this time to do that. Why now? In other words, none of these statements make any sense at all. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, what people wanted to hear from Garland you know, put put Trump on the side as hard as that is to do because he makes people's head explode whether they like him or they don't like him. But like, 
I, I think with the attorney general, what people wanted to hear the attorney general say when he and he didn't have to speak publicly. But I think if you if you're going to speak publicly, you have to address what's on people's minds and what they're curious about. You know, if he had come out and said, you know, look, we tried to explain to the former president that it was really important that we return this stuff to a safe place in the government. And then we sent some people down to talk to him and that didn't work. And then we gave him a grand jury subpoena. And that didn't seem to work. So we gave him another grand jury subpoena that was more narrow. And this time we told him, you know, look, this is serious. You're going to enforce this with contempt. Uh, And then we talked to, say, you know, uh, uh, Mike Pompeo or or Lindsey Graham or somebody who's close to the to the foreign president and asked them to go down and explain to him why it was important that we get this stuff back. And we tried all these different options and nothing worked. So finally, we were out of options and we had to get a search warrant. I think people might not have agreed with that, but at least they would have they would have said, OK, that's a sensible explanation. I still don't like that they did this and they still haven't explained to me, you know, what were these documents? They're telling us it's classified information so they can't tell us what's in the documents. So I'm never going to be very comfortable with this. But at least the guy came out and tried to explain to me, here's why we had to do this. Mm. Instead, he didn't do that at all. Um, so the only one out there speaking is, is uh, former President Trump. And, you know, whether you believe his version of events or not, at least he's got a version of events, whereas the attorney general takes the podium but doesn't really say anything. And then the one thing we do hear is that he said that he thought about this really long and hard and it was his personal decision. And then his prosecutors go into court and say, well, this is the beginning of our investigation. So <laughs> right. how, how long and hard could he have thought of it? <laughs> no, no, these are very common sense points. I, none of this seems to add up. He thought long and hard. <laughs> but they're only in the early stages. I love that. These are very important points you're making. How or how early and hard is he been thinking about this? And then wow. they're in the so he hasn't gotten far in his deliberations, but he decided to send the army in anyway. Yeah, I, I, I just I don't know. I, I don't think it makes any sense. But I, I also think, um, you know, for what it's worth, President Trump ought to lay low mm. in the tall grass for now because I think you know he's out there saying, you know, these corrupt people and they did terrible things. And I think he's got other people who can say that. But what I would be uh, concerned about is they did get a warrant. They did get a judge to sign a warrant, which means the judge made a finding that there was probable cause that up, up to three crimes, according to what's in the warrant, got committed. I don't really think they want to prosecute these crimes. I think they just wanted the stuff back. Now, they may want to prosecute them on January 6th, but I don't think they want to prosecute them on a government records violation or on a classified information violation. But if he keeps going out there and saying that they're corrupt and they made the whole thing up and, you know, mm. I I worked with these people for 20 years, you know, and I'm uh, I can tell you uh, how they think because it's the way I thought it would be. Oh, yeah. OK. That's the way you want to play. And then, you know, he could talk himself into getting charged on something I don't think they want to charge him on. So I think it would be, you know, he talked last week about lowering the temperature. I think it would serve him well to lower the temperature Mm. and, you know, just let this play out because he could talk himself into getting charged. No, you don't want uh, the hornet's nest to go crazy. Nope. 
and that's uh, what you're saying. Let's can we talk a little bit about the hornet's nest, about the FBI? Because yep. you filed today uh, what a, what Mike Pence gets wrong about the FBI, and this is a tricky subject. Um, I guess we all want to believe in the FBI, but then again, you look at the FBI and what they've been doing through this period, and you sort of say to yourself, not so much, you know? You sort of say to yourself, not so much. The FBI, gee whiz, we're going to have to have a thoroughgoing reform of the FBI. Well, I think so, and, you know, I think I was wrong about something important um, when I was a prosecutor. When I, You know, in the 90s, when we were doing terrorism cases, everybody always pointed to the British model of how they do national security, where they have MI5 and Scotland Yard, you know, mm-hmm. and MI5 is not a police agency. It's just an intelligence agency. They don't have police powers. Uh, and then they have the police force, which does the law enforcement. And I always thought, well, we were better off the way we did it with the FBI having both jobs and having both responsibilities under the same roof so that they could kind of leverage each other. But I think, you know, now that we have 30 years to look at how this is all gone or close to 30 years, I think that the the Bureau's ethos has changed. I think, you know, what they really did well and the reason we love the FBI um, and I love the FBI is they were a great police agency. They were a federal police agency that, that took on cases like big mafia cases and big racketeering, big syndicate cases that local law enforcement can't do because it's all interstate and it's too difficult and it's analytical and um, it's just a different set of skills. But when the jihadist threat uh, rose in the 90s, and particularly after 9-11, I think the Bureau became more of an intelligence agency than a law enforcement agency. And it's a very different – it's a different set of skills. It's a different feel. It's a different stress on – secrecy and it's too easy to get kind of entwined in politics because everything's under the cone you know the the great thing about law enforcement is is you know that someone's going to check your work in the end you know when people get indicted you're going to have to turn everything over in discovery and if you lied to courts or if you did things you weren't supposed to do we're going to find out about it but in that intelligence world that doesn't happen nobody checks your work and i don't think it's been good for the bureau Let's take a quick break and pursue this some more because um, your your column today, what Mike Pence gets wrong about the FBI. I mean, the FBI business is very, very important. And I think what you're saying is let's bring them back to being good police yep. and uh, not so much national security and intel stuff. Uh, we're talking to the great uh, Andrew McCarthy, uh, former uh, district U.S. attorney. But you can read him folks on national review online he's posted a brand new column this morning what mike pence gets wrong about the fbi and he's been a great uh, north star for us throughout this whole business about defcon 5 i love that that's where they went they went from zero to 103 days and i'm larry kudlow and we'll be right back with andy mccarthy 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to Andy McCarthy, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, National Review Online, Fox Business, no, Fox News contributor across the board. And I will pitch the book, Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, let me just read here from this morning's column on the FBI Uh, I no longer believe the Bureau can get its priorities straight. We have to be honest. Things are headed in the wrong direction. Over the last decade, as it took on the cast of a spy agency, the Bureau returned to its Hooverian, meaning uh, J. Edgar Hoover, roots, becoming enmeshed in politics and serving a partisan agenda, inevitably that of the Democratic Party, because Democrats are the party of government and the Bureau knows where its bread is buttered. So, um, if we ever get a reform president, we're going to have to take another look at the FBI. And you're saying, go back to being the G-men that went after the syndicates and the criminals and across state lines and stay out of the secrecy of terrorism and national security. Is that the basic gist of it? Yeah, and I I just think, Larry, that after 30 years, we can assess that... um the intelligence mission, the domestic intelligence mission is very important. The foreign counterintelligence mission is very important. I don't think we want a police agency doing it. Um, I just think it's not a – I mean, we've seen how this works, and it doesn't work well. Um, and I just think it's hurt the Bureau in particular because, you know, when you treat – we always complain that the, the Clinton administration, for example – was treating a national security problem, terrorism, as if it was a common law enforcement uh, problem. Mm. Um, and I think one of the unseen problems with that, the, the, the obvious problem is you can't uh, treat like al-Qaeda as if it was the mafia and give them discovery of everything that's in your files like you would have to do in a normal criminal case. I think the unseen thing about trying to treat these national security problems like criminal problems is the, the corners you have to cut and the things you have to do to make it fit into the justice system bleed into the justice system in normal cases. And it, 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 if the FBI is not really a police force, but it's an intelligence force, it has a different set of priorities. It's no longer going to be as transparent. It's no longer going to be as adherent to the Bill of Rights protections that are so important in the criminal system. It's mainly going to be about, like, secrecy, and if you decide that your mission is not to investigate crime, but to prevent crime from happening in the first place, 
that's a that's a very different set of priorities and it's appropriate with respect to mass murder attacks but it's not appropriate you know most crime we don't try to obliterate crime we try to manage it and we try to be aggressive and project the idea that the laws are going to be enforced but we don't want police agencies that are out there trying to prevent every crime from happening and the only way you can do that is by being an intelligence agency rather than you know Mm. a, a police investigative agency there is a crime wave now the crime wave across the country i i know you know you have these crazy laws that favor uh criminals over victims and no bail and no jail and things of that sort. Uh, but is the FBI not doing its homework? Is that part of the crime wave? No, you know, I think that uh, President Trump and Bill Barr did a very good job with respect to, you know, much like Rudy did in the in the Reagan days, the idea that the, the federal government is there to deal with the crime problem in the jurisdiction. And if the crime problem in the jurisdiction is violent gang crime, then we got to throw federal resources at violent gang crime. And I think Attorney General Barr understood in a way that, um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't, that the feds can only help as much as the states and the and the locals let them help. Hmm. So if you want, if you're the NYPD and you can use the help for gang crime and gun crime. That can be a very effective partnership, and I think for that reason, we've had a lot of good task, for, task forces, you know, against terrorism, against drugs, against guns, against gangs, in New York, because the feds, even for all the the stuff you read in the papers about how they these guys can't get along with each other, they actually do uh, cooperate with each other pretty well. But if you're in a situation like like we had with Chicago where they don't want to let the feds come in because it's Trump. So, you know, we don't want to let Trump come in and help us. Then there's nothing the feds can do. I mean, mm-hmm. they can be there and be ready to help. But if you don't have an effective partnership with the local police agency, there's a limit to how much the feds can help with street crime. Mm-hmm. Was Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover, was J. Edgar Hoover originally a good G-man? Was he a good cop? Yeah, you know, I you see I, these I movies know. about I, I, John Dellinger and all these, you know, these romanticized movies. I, I, I never could quite figure that out. Yeah, well, he did. He probably did more to promote the image of the FBI than, mm-hmm. in terms of like their budget. And he was a big help on that Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. show. Remember that was on? <laughs> yeah. Was it in the sixties? Yes, every it was week, fabulous. And, you know, the FBI, right? Man, so, no, it was um, fabulous. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but I, you know, I think what happened to Hoover is a kind of a, a cautionary tale for what's happened to the bureau in recent years, which is the more things are done close to political power and under the cone of secrecy, the less they are like law and order, the less they're like you know regular police work. Police work is meant to be transparent. You know, I mean, I think we. We have to protect the identities of informants, although they get exposed at trial. If they have to testify, they have to testify. And grand jury proceedings are secret because we don't want to ruin people's reputations when they haven't been charged with everything and anything and they're presumed innocent. But for the most part, you know, when you arrest people, it's all public. The trials are public. The information gets turned over to defense. The judge looks at it. it. You know, it becomes very public. Whereas all this stuff that happens in secrecy, it's too tempting to bend the rules 
And what happened when the FISA court investigated not just the way the Russiagate thing got handled, but across the board, how has the FBI performed in FISA, say, the last five or six years? And it's, it seems like every time they look under a rock, these guys are violating the rules. You know, mm-hmm. they're, not, they're not verifying information they're bringing to the court. They're not keeping the background information that they're supposed to keep in what's called a Woods file. It's like their backup to, to show that they try to corroborate things before they went to the court. They have to do that with that court because there's no due process mm-hmm. in that court. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like there's going to be a defense lawyer um, looking at this stuff at some point. Mm-hmm. It's all classified. And the court doesn't have the resources to investigate what the FBI is telling them. So they have to trust them. Last 30 seconds. You think this uh, Trump business is going to go to trial? Uh, I really hope not. I don't think I think if they wanted to charge him with records or classified information, Larry, they'd have done that. I don't know how that case gets better. I mean, he either had the classified documents or he didn't. And he's either right or wrong that he could classify them on his own. Doesn't seem to me like investigating that for another three or four months is going to advance the ball much. When do you think that uh, this local magistrate judge is going to make a decision uh, on the affidavit? Probably uh, a, a day or two after, um, you know, they present the the redacted one next week. But the thing is, the government can appeal if they don't like his answer. Mm. You know, we may not we may not see this for a while because they can they can appeal it to the district court. Andy McCarthy, can't thank you enough, as always. Terrific stuff. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk about this ridiculous bill, Manchin Schumer, and what damage it's done to our fossil fuels. Frank Macchirola of uh, the American Petroleum Institute is going to weigh in on that. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will be right back after this break. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to talk about this um, Manchin-Schumer monstrosity bill. And I refer, as I did earlier in the show, to the Wall Street Journal editorial today, the Inflation Reduction Act's energy winners and losers. Schumer-Manchin is a renewables above all bill. Fossil fuels lost big, et cetera, et cetera. The monstrosity of a bill. We bring in Frank Macchiarola, Senior Vice President of Policy, Economics, and Regulatory Affairs at the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, Frank, thank you for coming on. Uh, appreciate it. A bunch of sure, taxes. Right. A bunch of taxes on this bill, on fossil fuels rather. Sixteen point four. Sixteen point four cents a barrel tax on crude doubles the current excise tax on coal, a new methane fuel, basically redirects business investment from fossils to green energy by making the latter more profitable and the former more costly. The result will be higher energy prices. Um, What do you think here? There's so much bad in this bill, and um, how much damage will it do to the fossil industry? Thanks for having me on, Larry. Um, look, this this bill uh, will have significant impacts on oil and gas here in the United States. I mean, first, it's important to note the law was passed strictly along party lines in the House and the Senate, and it comes at a time when the U.S. is in the midst of a recession and the world is facing a significant energy crisis, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 70s. 
And this legislation will likely make those things worse, not improve them. I mean, Mm. you spoke a little bit about those three provisions. This this is a massive tax increase on uh, U.S. oil and gas, uh, and it will ultimately be borne by the consumer. Um, You know, you have a $300 billion uh, book minimum tax and stock buyback tax. You have an $11.7 billion tax on crude and petroleum products. You have a new methane tax, a natural gas tax, which is about $6.3 billion. And again, these tax increases come at the worst possible time. We ought to be looking to increase supply and lower costs, um, but this bill does the opposite. You know, Frank, we used to have, back in the old days, which was (laughs) 10 or 15, 20 years ago, we had what was known as an all-of-the-above strategy. We wanted to promote all sources of energy, fossils and renewables and nuclear and so forth. And now that has given way and been replaced, at least during the Biden years. And you're quite right. This was a party line vote, a highly partisan vote. So it could be overturned if you get a shift in the House and Senate, which is likely the cavalry is coming. But we've given up on the all the above. And now we're just uh, demonizing fossils. And I don't understand the logic to that because climate change, you know, we've had a lot of experts on the TV show and here on the radio show. Climate change, these are like 50 to 100 year cycles, for heaven's sakes. Here and now, there's no reason why we couldn't have continued on all of the above uh, energy policy. Why do you think it's worked out this way? I don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say why it's worked out this way for decades uh it's been a bipartisan objective of administrations to become more energy secure more energy dependent what that meant was to reduce our reliance on foreign sources of energy in 2019 for the first time in almost 70 years the u.s uh, became a net exporter of energy Mm. that had tremendous benefits for our economy for our national security and also for the environment Um, The greater use of natural gas here in the United States is the single most significant factor in reducing carbon emissions. So this was a win for the environment. It was a win for our economy and for our national security. And the Biden administration uh, came in and has seemed to want to reverse that progress that we've made, not just on energy security, but also on the environment. It's, It's hard to understand why. You know, Manchin's not going to get his permitting. He thinks he is, but he won't. I mean, they're already seeing people in the House, all the progressive far-left people, they're going to vote against a permitting bill. We're not going to go back to NEPA permitting. There are a few a few oil leases, uh, lease sales may be uh, allowed, Frank, but they're not going to get the permits to be able to work those, those uh, land masses. And I, I'm amazed that... You know, they took a vote. All the Democrats in the Senate, except Manchin, voted against permitting. Uh, You know, that was the vote from the Alaska Center. The point is, there's nothing in this that's promising for fossils. And if you don't get the permits, right, you can't work it. You You can't drill. You can't pipeline. You can't improve refineries. None of that stuff. Yeah, it's, re- it's really unfortunate, Larry, because if you think about it, it's not the resources that we lack here in the United States. Right. 
It's the ability to get the resources from where they are to where they're needed for consumers. And key to that is permitting reform. Mm. How do we build that infrastructure here in the United States? Under the previous administration, uh, they tackled NEPA reform to reduce delays in permitting, to reduce uh, the litigation associated with permitting, to make sure that permitting infrastructure projects was a priority. Uh, From day one, this administration has taken a different course. They shut down the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, You see the FERC uh, creating a Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, creating barriers to more natural gas infrastructure. Infrastructure was essential to the shale revolution that we had in the United States. And this administration simply has not prioritized it in in terms of what Congress is doing. Look, this was a pillar of the agreement between Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer. And now Congress is off in recess and we don't have permitting reform uh, moving through either house. So it's really a disappointing uh, circumstance here. I mean, the greenies in Europe are smarter than the greenies here in the U.S. The greenies in Europe have said not gas is green which it is, basically. Well, and and you look at Europe. Europe should be a cautionary tale to the United States, right? The transition that they made was too quick, and what ended up happening was our allies in Europe became over-reliant on Putin's natural gas, and the results are uh, not just uh, national security challenges for those countries, but you see skyrocketing costs of natural gas. Um, Here in the United States, uh, permitting reform and infrastructure have been critical to getting, uh, you know, the the resources that we have uh, in the Marcellus Shale to to the consumer. The United States has 100 years worth of natural gas. We ought to be doing everything possible to be able to tap into that strategic asset that we have. What's, uh, uh, Frank Macchiarella, what's the outlook for gasoline prices now? And is there a shortage, is there a looming shortage in gasoline supplies because of the refinery problems and so forth? Refinery capacity has been a challenge really, you know, as a result. uh, It's a long-term challenge, but it was also exacerbated by COVID. We saw significant decline in demand during COVID from 100 million barrels per day globally down to 80 million barrels per day. That really disrupted the markets. Um, it is an issue. Uh, there's, there's no question about it. Um, in terms of prices, look, we, we have a supply and demand imbalance. And so the administration is touting a couple of months of lower prices, but we still face a significant energy crisis. Um, and, you know, an economic slowdown is not the answer uh, to gas prices. The the answer to uh, providing affordable and reliable energy for the consumer is more supply. Mm. And the way that we do that is by incentivizing more production on federal lands and waters, which is the direct opposite of what the administration's done, building out pipelines so we can get that product to where it's needed. Uh, you know, at API, we introduced a, a plan uh, to help provide relief called the 10 and 22. Uh, the the, really, the structure of that plan was providing more supply, providing greater infrastructure, providing regulatory relief. Um, we think that's the direction that Congress and this administration should take. And the last thought is um, nuclear power. 
nuclear power is, be, is sort of the stepchild of renewables. Now, I, I know API is not directly involved, but nuclear power, nobody wants to do nukes. Nukes would be helpful in this story, would they not? I mean, there's no global warming problem with nuclear power, but the greenies don't like nuclear power. Yeah, Larry, to, to your point, we, we need an all-of-the-above strategy in this yes. country. We shouldn't pick winners and losers. We shouldn't uh, discard the fuels and the resources we have in the United States. If we're going to tackle this challenge, if we're going to provide affordable and reliable energy for the American consumer, if we're going to use our energy resources as a national security asset, then we need to tap into all of it. Uh, and we need to break down the barriers that have been uh, put up by by Congress, by regulators, uh, and we really need a an energy policy that incentivizes more U.S. production. All right, Frank Macchiarola, Senior VP of Policy for the American Petroleum Institute. Thanks for the rundown, Frank. We appreciate it, folks. We're going to take a quick break, that. and we're going to come back. and I, I want to ask my uh, Jim Garrity of the National Review. Why is everybody saying the Republicans have lost their mojo for the midterm elections? I don't get this. Nobody likes Biden policies. Anyway, I think the cavalry is still coming, but we'll ask Jim Garrity about all of that when we return. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Much more to come. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and I'm reading all these stories from Mitch McConnell on down, that the Republicans have lost their mojo for the midterm elections, that maybe the cavalry's not coming. I don't personally happen to believe that, but we're going to bring in Jim Garrity, senior political correspondent at the National Review. And, and i got to tout this. He's got a new book out. It's called Saving the Devil, A Dangerous Clique Story. Jim Garrity, welcome to the show. Larry, it's always good to hear your voice, and thanks for having me on. So, what? I just um, saving the devil, a dangerous clique story. Is this a James Bond novel? What is this? It is somewhat in that uh, vein. It's a thriller series. The saving the devil is just ninety nine cents. I wrote a short story to kind of give people a easy way to see if this kind of series is for them. Uh, picture uh, James Bond or twenty four with characters who sound like a, a Dennis Miller comedic monologue. Uh, this is very irreverent, quirky, snarky, sarcastic, uh, full of uh, crazy references. Um, one of the characters I introduced is an enforcement agent for the Treasury Department, uh, the kind of person who gets to seize the yachts of Russian oligarchs and things like that. And I say oh, that, I she like is, that she's inspired a, a motto for her team at the Treasury Department, the only man with a gun that we fear is Aaron Burr. Um, if that's your kind of thing, this is the, the thriller series for you. Can you get um, Can you get this on one click on Amazon? Yes, you can. Uh, it's already available on. Uh, if you, in fact, if you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. You can just click that one. This short story is ninety nine cents. The ebooks are just three ninety nine. Uh, I write this in my spare time, but it is very cathartic when not writing about politics and stuff <laughs> to write about bad guys dying in terrible explosions and stuff like that. It's, it's you know always good to see the bad guys go to a terrible end. All right. Well, I agree with that. Um, why is Mitch McConnell and everybody else? I mean, this is wave of stories. Mm -hmm. uh, although I notice, um, I notice not not everybody. Molly Hemingway wrote a kind of a rebuttal. 
I mean, why is everyone saying Republicans uh, are not going to retake the Senate? I mean, I don't, I, I don't think, for example, their candidates are so bad. In fact, I think they have some very outstanding candidates. Nobody likes Joe Biden. Nobody likes Joe Biden's policies. Nobody likes inflation. Nobody likes the border. Nobody likes crime. Nobody likes critical race theory in the schools. What's changed here? Sure. I, look, there's been a, you know, a series of, of not-so-great polls. I think it's safe to say that you can point to certain states and certain races where Republicans nominated either the wrong guy or a challenge. I think you know, Pennsylvania jumps out. Mehmet Oz is uh, too Trumpy for the folks who are skeptical of Trump, and he's just nowhere near Trumpy enough, I think, for the Trump voters who, you know, Trump endorsed him, but this was, you know, Oprah's doctor and, and just not the, you know, this guy's been a Republican for about 10 minutes. Um, just doesn't doesn't have any roots in the conservative movement, and it's like, who is this guy? Wait, what? You know. Now, having said that, I do think that um, you know that there, there was a recent uh, uh, controversy about this video from April, in which he's going shopping at the grocery store, and he makes he makes a reference to crudités, <laughs> what, what most of us would call a vegetable plate. And Democrats and liberals on social media are all like, oh, my God. And he says Wegners instead of Wegmans and all kinds yeah. of stuff like that. So, yeah, people are going to make fun of him. But I kind of wonder if there's this, like, ricochet effect of people look at that and say, <laughs> he said crudités. Yeah. Yeah, I'm paying twice what I used to pay for my groceries. What the hell, man? Right. Um, and the idea that actually that might, you know, penetrate a bit more than people think. But, like, that, that's a case where I think, yes, you've nominated somebody who is very challenging in this environment. Crudités. By the way, crudité's prices, crudité is rising at about a 14% annual rate. So whatever you want to call it, it's not good. Uh, Look, I was for McCormick, okay? I was for David McCormick and and Dina and all the rest of it. But he's running against a crazy person. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. And and same thing in Wisconsin. Ron Johnson is, he's not down that much. He's down, uh, what, five or six, seven points. But Ron Johnson's running against a crazy person. And a lot of these Democratic candidates are crazy people. And I don't know why Mitch McConnell doesn't talk about that. Much like in uh, you know, horror movies, you should never believe the monster is dead until, you're, until the credits roll. I will not believe Ron Johnson is defeated in a race hmm. until the votes are totally certified. Because if you look back six years ago... Every poll had him down by sometimes by double digits. Russ mm-hmm. Fine. There was a liberal magazine that ran a cover piece that was entitled "Russ Feingold Returns to Washington," running against <laughs> John, Ron Johnson. Out there, lo and behold, Ron Johnson won by three and a half points. Mm-hmm. So Ron Johnson just has this amazing ability to dramatically overperform. I don't know if Wisconsin voters kind of don't like telling a pollster that they're going to vote for him. I'm not saying this is a guarantee he's going to win. I'm just saying I don't count him out until uh, the final gun, so to speak. Um, Jim, I think there are a bunch of other cases where he's like, going to win, Jim. He's going to win because he's really smart. He's not pretentious mm-hmm. and he's a good capitalist. And the issue is going to be the economy and yeah. inflation. I, I just feel like I've heard this story at least twice before in which, you know, I don't know, you know, this is a purple to blue state and Ron Johnson doesn't have a chance and somehow he wins. So I, I would not. I'm, that's actually not one of the ones I'm most worried about. And my thinking on Ohio has changed a bit. There was a long stretch where a whole bunch of polls showed Tim Ryan ahead, sometimes by a little bit, by like three points, then sometimes up by 11 points. Most of these were Democratic uh, or outside interest group funded polls. So if you want to dismiss them, you can. New poll comes out this week. uh, uh, Suffolk College has uh, J.D. Vance up by three. Now, that's not a huge margin. 
But this is a purple state that's been trending purple, pretty red. Trump won by eight points. It looks like it's going to be a good year for Republicans. I think J.D. Vance does better. What happened was is that Tim Ryan pretty much had the airwaves to himself from the end of the Republican primary until like two weeks ago. And when there's a whole, and my readers were telling me, Jim, when is J.D. Vance going to get up on the air? All I see is Tim Ryan ads. It's kind of like the, the ubiquitousness of the Mike Bloomberg, Mike can get it done ads, where you're starting to see them in your dreams because you were seeing them everywhere. Um, but now you look at it, you know, it looks like J.D. Vance is ahead by a small margin. In this kind of environment, I think J.D. Vance is the safer bet. But obviously, I want every Republican to run like they're 10 points behind. Don't run like thinking you're going to well, do 10 right. points better. Well, that's right. But also, let's go to Blake Masters. I interviewed Blake Masters on the TV show. He's a smart guy, and he's got a good message. Again, he's got a good message on the economy. He's got a good message on the border. He's got a good message on the IRS. Uh is there a reason why Blake Masters can't win in Arizona? No, I was going to say, you know, I put this one and maybe Herschel Walker against Raphael Warnock in Georgia. You're asking the Democratic candidate to perform, overperform the, the President Biden's job approval rating by like 10, 15, maybe even 20 points. You know, right. Biden's approval rating in those states is in the low 30s. Mm. That's a really bad. And also, the, the other thing that kind of makes me say, look, you know, we've had a, a not so great stretch for a bunch of Senate Republican candidates, but. The wrong track number in this country is still seven, averaging 71%, right? Right. When seven out of every 10 people think the country's going in the right direction. The incumbent party is not going to do well. Now, does this mean every one of these races breaks the way Republicans want? It's not a guarantee, but that is a strong, strong undertow that uh, Democratic candidates are swinging against. Well, Herschel Walker, now, I was reading someplace, maybe it was you, I don't know, that said Herschel needs to start talking about the football, the college football season. <laughs> it would not surprise, by, by October, was that you? we're going to see ads that? that sound like NFL films, you know. <laughs> Herschel Walker broke through the linebacker, you know. Um, because, look, he begins the race, his strongest asset is the, you know, national championship he won for the University of Georgia, right. and the fact that the state has lots of Georgia football fans who love him. And they like him, and they give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't think I'm being mean or exaggerating to say that he's been a <clears throat> less than fully effective communicator for his agenda. Mm. And, you know, Raphael Warnock is a uh, preacher who's a very effective communicator and has already, you know, won in, uh, in a, that uh, runoff in 2020, or uh, early 2021. But in the end, uh, this is still of Georgia, and I think Brian Kemp is going to win the Georgia governor's race pretty handily. Mm -hmm. And in this kind of year, this kind of environment, Herschel Walker can win. I'm not saying mm -hmm. he's going; to, he's guaranteed to win, but I wouldn't put his odds much below 50-50. And I think that you know, as, as long as you know Walker can go out there and say, "Hey, you know me; we share the same values. I'm going to fight for you." You know, I'm I'm going to run down opposition in Congress to say, "Wait, well, I used to run down those line, run over those linebackers." And I think you know that could easily get you to 51 percent. Right. We're going to beat Auburn. We're going to beat LSU. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. College football season will help Herschel Walker. I mean, some of these guys like Tim Ryan, Tim Ryan's trying to make out that he's a Republican. He's not. He votes for every single Biden thing. Uh, yeah. Kelly in Arizona votes straight Biden. Warnock in Georgia, straight Biden. These are Biden guys. So they're all Joe Bidens in their respective states. That's the way you run and that's the way you win. Yeah, and at least according to reporting out of the White House, Joe Biden can't wait to get on the campaign trail and campaign <laughs> for all these Senate Democrats. And Republicans are yelling, yes, oh, get go, out Joe, there. go, get out there. <laughs> get out there. <laughs> and a whole bunch of Democrats are like, ah, yeah, I, might, I, might have, I think i got to wash my hair that night. I, uh, I gotta... 
Oh, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I think Mitch McConnell needs a pep pill or something. He's just too down. He needs, he needs some meds to get going. Well, it is reasonable. I think there's one reasonable expectation setting that you don't want. Because here's the thing. Let's say Republicans win a 51-49 majority, right? And I think they'll win the House. I don't know if we'll see the you know 40-seat, 60-seat numbers that I've seen folks like Newt Gingrich saying. Give me 20. Because, yeah, they'll get 20. Republicans are starting at a high floor. You know, they already have almost a majority, so there's not as many low-hanging fruit to win there. All right. So, All right. Jim Garrity, National Review. Thanks for the rundown. Much more optimistic. Folks, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and do some stock market work. The stock market versus the Fed. All right? The stock market does not believe the Fed's going to be tight. It may be in for a rude awakening. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will be right back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's a great day. It's a birthday day. 39 years old. How about that? Anyway, join us during the week. Fox Business Network, please. Name the show's Kudlow. Monday through Friday, 4 to 5 p.m. every day. And if you can't be there at four, you can just text your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show and you'll never miss a thing. And here on the radio, you can live stream us on the internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, all across the country, throughout the world, and the solar system. We're going to look at the stock market. Stock market has had a very good run. Not so much yesterday. Everybody was down yesterday. The Dow lost 292 points. But the stock market has had a good run. And one question I want to ask our distinguished panelists, who will appear momentarily, is does the market think the Fed is bluffing? Big topic. And the Fed goes to their annual poobah meeting in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, this coming week. And uh, I think they're going to talk tough. I think the market should believe the Fed. But whatever I think, we're going to talk to Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower Investors and Head of Investment Solutions, and Nancy Tengler, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Lafford Tengler Investments, which is a five-star Morningstar rating. So, ladies, thank you for coming on. And I begin with you, Nancy Tangler, because I, th- I think this is sort of a disconnect. I think tight money is usually bad for the stock market. Uh, the old adage is don't fight the Fed. But you've had a terrific rally here um, since mid-June. I don't know. It's up 15, 16 percentage points, some such thing. And let's see, year to date, the indexes are no longer in bear market territory. The S&P 500 is down 11%. The Dow's off 7%. So, Nancy, what do you think about this Fed story relative to the stock market? Well, happy birthday, my friend. Good to, <laughs> good to be with you today. Um, you're, you're 39. I'm, I'm just right behind you. <laughs> right behind you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I I think a couple of things. I mean, the Fed, you know, I've been pretty critical of the Fed, who was way behind the curve. uh, And they used, however, jawboning very effectively to get uh, markets to tighten conditions long before they were tightening. And so I think that's part of where you you get this um, chatter around, does the market think that the Fed's bluffing? And I think I joined Stephanie in this 
um, area, we have said, listen, don't chase this rally. In June, we were we were adding risk back into our portfolios. That was a good near-term decision, but the markets don't go straight up, and there's a lot of reasons for volatility in the next week, if not month. Uh, and then I think we turn attention to to the um, midterm elections. But um, earnings are done, so there's there's not a lot to distract the market, and so you're going to see a lot of focus on and parsing of every word. I am with you. I think they continue to tighten, but I don't think uh, they continue to tighten super aggressively. And so, you know, we'll get 50, maybe a 50 base point hike, maybe 75. It doesn't really matter at this point uh, because we're still in negative real interest rate environment. Mm -hmm. And and the last thing I'll say about this is that, you know, the the Fed has has a (laughs) is fighting the federal government uh, effectively. You know, this I wrote a piece called Washington Hopium, and Hopium is an addiction to false hope. This constant spending of money, uh, and then we get the CBO coming out and dutifully saying, "No, it's a deficit reduction act." Uh, and yet, for example, one of the big uh, payfors in this in the inflation quote reduction unquote act is a 288 billion prescription <clears throat> drug uh, price controls that doesn't even take place until 2026. Uh, so I think that is something that I'm very worried about as inflation starts to roll over. Um, the momentum is 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 in that direction, though I think we still have persistently high inflation for some time. Uh, the, the federal government, once again, is spending money, raising taxes in the face of uh, slowing economy, uh, potential recession, which we think we'll see. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic, so I'm, I'm certainly not chasing stocks here. You know, on the CBO scoring, uh, I haven't seen a final scorecard uh, for this bill, but they are one of the deficit reduction measures is they've taken away a 250 billion dollar rebate to consumers of um, drugs any drugs prescription drugs mm-hmm. generic drugs that the Trump administration um, thought it was going to put into place but never put into place so they're taking away a phantom $250 billion rebate that never existed in the first place. And right there, that blows up the deficit reduction. I just thought I'd put that in because I was um, involved in that discussion inside the White House when I was there. But, I mean, these numbers are as phony as a $3 bill. Now, Stephanie Absolutely. Link, uh, I, I guess you, you have to believe this sort of – it's a combination, Stephanie. You have – Number one, a lot of people saying inflation is coming down rapidly or inflation is over or inflation is peaked or inflation is something. I'm not so sure about that, but I don't see how the Fed cannot remain tight. I mean, Nancy makes the point about real interest rates still being negative. You got a long ways to go. I mean, core inflation is still running six, seven percent. The Fed funds rate is whatever it is, two and a half percent. That's got a long ways to go, and I think the stock market is being a little naive. <laughs> yes, and I will actually also mention happy birthday to you. You look mar- marvelous for any age. Whatever you're doing, I want your playbook, Larry. So just let me know after the show. Thank you very much. Um, anyway, uh, look, the S&P 500 is up about 15 16% from the mid-June for a couple of reasons. One Sentiment was ridiculous. It was so negative in June. People were calling for 
3,100 on the S&P, some 2,800. It was like, if we break 3,600, we're going so much further and earnings are going to collapse. That was number one. Number two, to your point, people believe that the Fed was pivoting. I didn't believe that at all. And then number three, and I don't think it gets enough credit, the economic data is not horrendous. It's not great. We are slowing, but there are pockets that are okay, like retail sales, for example, up 12.3% ex-auto. Look at jobs, even jolts. I know they're down from the all-time highs, but you're still at about 10 million. That's, by any measures, that's very, very strong. And manufacturing. I mean, I think of all the numbers that came out last week, industrial production, two times what people were expecting, suggests to me that supply chains are loosening up and we're hearing it from Cisco. We're hearing it from applied materials. So, so the supply chain situation is starting to help. So all of those reasons, I think, are the reasons we rally. Now, we go back to inflation. Yeah, we can talk about, okay, we're not maybe in a recession. We're just slower growth and earnings are hanging in. Um, and I'd argue earnings are hang- doing more than hanging in. They're up 10.3% this quarter alone. But inflation is too high. And that is why the Fed has to continue to be aggressive. Rent, wages. By the way, natural gas. Everyone's talking about commodity prices coming down. Not natural gas. It's at 14-year highs. Food. Look at the CPI and the PPI. Up 10% and 15% in food year over year in both uh, series. And then, of course, we, we all pay attention to core PCE, and that's coming out this Friday. But the last number we had was 4.8% year over year. The Fed wants it to be two. So there is no way that they're going to stop. And I think next week at Jackson Hall, you're going to have a plethora of Fed officials talking more hawkishly. And look what we got from Bullard this week, this past week. He's talking about now 75 in, in September. And to Nancy's point, I don't really care if it's 50 or 75. It's higher. That's the point. Right. And so you want to be very careful that things that have rallied in this market since the June lows has been growth, has been technology and non-earners. And if the Fed is going to continue to raise rates, you do not want to own any of those. You don't want to have long duration assets in the short run. Look at opportunities to buy. But in the short run, you do not want to chase. Bullard's the smartest guy in the Fed. Yeah, I know Bullard. Bullard is the smartest guy in the Fed. Listen to Bullard. That's what I think. Listen to Bullard. By the way, July, you know, Nancy, July was a better month than June and May in the economy. There's no question about that. It's a mixed bag, but the numbers came out pretty good. I wonder whether August will continue that trend or not. I'd be very careful. There's something phony about those jobs numbers that came out um, with respect (laughs) to seasonal adjustments. And households not doing the same thing that payrolls are doing. But so the Atlanta GDP tracker is what, 1.6 percent for Q3 after two negatives in Qs one and two. Um, And that's about July, right? I mean, July was a better month. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. Does it mean anything? Probably doesn't mean anything. This is the hard part. This is what Stephanie and I, I wrestle with every single day is the cross current of numbers that that just as you think you're moving in one direction, you get a pivot back. But but I'll, I'll add to what Steph said on inflation. It's not just um, core PCE, but if you look at the Fed, uh, Atlanta Fed's sticky CPI, mm-hmm. it's still at elevated levels. And flexible came down 11.3%. Hip hip parade down to to thirteen or fourteen percent year over year 
growth. So inflation is still here. We have seen some rollover in the in commodities, but I don't think the oil story is done. I don't think oil goes straight down from here. And in addition to natural gas, uh, coal features have risen just dramatically uh, in over 300 percent in the last year. So I, I think there's still a lot of work to do on inflation. And yes, housing is rolling over. Um, but that's a lagging indicator in terms of rents. And so I, I do think that and, and the productivity numbers have just been horrific. So I, I do think that one of the areas that you want to be looking at long term is is the, the companies that enhance productivity. And we just got a, a recent CIO survey that showed that uh, 78% of, of CIOs in the enterprise space have actually raised their, their budgets and, and are spending on software and cybersecurity. So when you get that pullback, those are the kind of names I think investors should be focused on because that is going to be the solution to higher wages and unit labor costs as we move we move through this uh, slowdown potential recession. Food, food prices are up 13.9% at an annual rate over the past three months. Food prices. That's a big mm-hmm. number. And mm-hmm. Stephanie's right about that gas. That's also a big number. Coal's a big number. I mean, my point is, um, I, I don't think the Fed has any way of uh, maintaining any credibility uh, if they ease up on their tightening. I mean, the balance sheet is slowed in a rate of growth increase, but the level is still very expansive. M2 has slowed quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll see if it stays down. Uh, I don't know that. Commodities, the commodity indexes has actually stopped falling. You guys looked at that? Mm-hmm. Looking at CRB, mm-hmm. CRB futures stopped falling in early July. They're up about 9 or 10%. The Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, same story. Let me see. I'm going to pull this up on my screen. That thing, same story, stopped falling in uh, early July. I mean, I think that um, the inflation is dead argument is not a good argument, Stephanie. That's what I'm suggesting. I would agree with you, and I, I think that people that are saying peak are excited to say it's peak, and it's the you know the market looks at the relative change, right? We all know this, and uh, but the point of it is is actually this is like one of the times where you kind of you want to appreciate the month over month numbers, but you also have to factor in the year over year numbers. And I don't care what anybody says about let's just look at core of anything of CPI, PPI, PPE. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, because I eat every day. So do you too, right? We go and we fill up our tanks and still darn expensive every single day. And inflation is high and it's everywhere. And I will tell you, one of the things that we learned this past week from the retailers is they are jacking up prices like there's no tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And the reason... Yeah. And, and even in spite of all this inventory overhang, they're still raising prices on the things that they can raise prices on. And that is food and that is consumable. So maybe apparel, get the break. Great. We can get an extra pair of jeans. Nancy and I could look really cute and with a couple of new outfits and you can get another tie for a lot less. But the bottom line is the, the everyday to day living items are going higher. And even if they are peakish, they're still high. And that has got to come down. And I just don't think the Fed is going to be able to, to quote unquote, pivot. And that's why I thought it was so strange that that's what the market, one of the reasons why the market rallied off the June lows, because they thought that they did. I I think this week we're going to hear a lot of more conservative commentary from uh, Jackson Hole. So, uh, you know, like Nancy, we're, we're not chasing. We're looking for opportunities always. 
um, I would say this. I am looking at opportunities in energy. One of the things that was interesting also this past week is oil prices are you know, kind of falling, maybe stabilizing, but they're down from their highs. But the energy stocks themselves are actually hanging in quite, quite well. And mm-hmm. Warren Buffett just got approval to buy up to 50 percent of Occidental. And he's he already owns 20 percent. Well, what does that tell you? The smartest investor in the planet is buying as much Occidental as you can. I'm not recommending it on your show. I'm not trying to do that. But just a point of you have to watch what people are doing and very smart people. Crude and hay prices are up. <laughs> that was Mehmet Oz said that crude and prices are up in his Pennsylvania Senate race. He's, r- he's right, by the way, but uh, you know, so, some people would call it fruit plates. <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a quick I couldn't resist. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Stephanie Link of Hightower Advisors and Investment Solutions and Nancy Tangler of Lafford Tangler Investments. I'm Larry Kudlow. I'm the like crude today. We'll be right back after this. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. All right. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Stephanie Link of uh, Hightower Advisors and uh, Investment Solutions and Nancy Tengler of uh, Laffer Tengler Investments. So, ladies, we went kind of long in the first part. Um, Nancy, what are you playing here? I mean, how do you do this while we wait for the Fed to do whatever it's going to do and we wait for the economy to do whatever it's going to do? Well, we've sat back and, um, you know, we made a bunch of moves in June and now we're um, waiting for opportunities. This is an environment, however, where you want to own companies that are reliable growers uh, that can can generate, you know, earnings growth in almost any environment, pricing, power, efficiencies, et cetera. And then you want dividend growers. And, you know, I think, interestingly, this one percent tax on share buybacks may actually benefit dividend buyers in the future i think companies are going to maybe reallocate some capital at the margin mm. uh so so we're we're really focused on dividend growth and um and that's always been something we've done since the mid 1980s so this isn't new for us but it i think is a good time to be focused on those kinds of companies and that's that's what we've been doing across it's, sectors. A, it's a great point by the way about the buyback tax that's a great point um, and probably it's a more efficient use of capital anyway to go to dividends. Anyway, agreed. Yeah, yep. I know. I, I like that. Stephanie, how are you playing it? Yeah, so pricing power stories. I mentioned energy. I am double my benchmark, so I'm 10% weighted uh, in, in my portfolio. Materials, same same drill. I think both have pricing power, and I think free cash flow is completely underestimated. And then a contrarian thought is consumer discretionary. Everyone's nervous about the consumer. Some of these stocks, and these are high-quality stocks, and I'll name a few, not that I own them, but something like a Starbucks or a Nike or an Estee Lauder or even a Target that are down 25 30% generating enormous amounts of free cash flow. And the valuations are now at a level where you can get these things. If you have a five-year time horizon, you're going to make money over the long run. Mm-hmm. Will Starbucks keep doing well because you can't use their bathrooms? They're closing their bathrooms? Probably better. <laughs> Probably better. I mean, I don't think people want. I don't think people that are having a cup of coffee want to have people traipsing in and going to the bathroom, right? I mean, yeah. no. I think Howard. I think Howard Schultz is doing a, an amazing job at figuring out where they want to go on their next journey. Starbucks 3.0. You have a new CEO that's coming in, yet to be announced. I think that's going to be a catalyst. And September, they have an analyst day, and we're going to hear all sorts of things about the new, as I said, reinvention of the company. Nancy, do you think um, energy prices could go back up, in particular oil prices, in particular gasoline prices? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I do. I don't think this is over. Um, and I, I, we, we are also double the bench. Not quite. We're one and a half to almost two times the bench um, in, in energy. And we, we, we have not pulled back away from that. Um, we've also been adding to, to technology uh, just to add in some specificity because we do think three to five years from now you're going to be happy on those names. Um, but, we, but we did that in June and we're waiting to add more. Uh, as on a pullback. But yes, indeed, I, I think you want to stay long energy here, natural mm. gas, and we own EOG resources, uh, FANG, and mm. Devon Energy, as well as Chevron. So and, we, we and like the, the space. And Steph, just to close out, 30 seconds, um, China recession, what does that mean? Uh, well, that's why they're that's why they cut the bench, right? They cut one year and seven day lending last week. They have to. They have no choice. I think they're going to reopen, and I think that's going to be an area where you have to find opportunities. Which is all the names I just mentioned, and not the scratch side. They have China reopen themes to them mm. as well. Mm. Could be a problem though globally. China, I don't know. Most of the stuff coming out of China looks pretty pessimistic, um, even if they are yeah. opening. I don't, I they're mean, gonna I, have to. They'll cut. They'll, they'll, they're going to have to cut more. They will. They, they have no choice, right? Boy, we're tightening and they're cutting. That's a very strange thing <laughs> for exchange rates. Anyway, ladies, thank you very much. <laughs> Stephanie Link, I appreciate thank it. You, Nancy Tangler, I appreciate it. Folks, stick around. Money and Politics up next with Liz Peek and Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are here with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works, Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and his latest book, Govzilla. Kids, welcome. Um, you know, I want to, I said this at the very beginning of the show today, and I want to just raise it one more time. This um, Biden war against Trump, as recently manifested in the um, in the outrageous uh, raid on Mar-a-Lago, you know, Steve Moore, let's this is a war against Trump to stop him from running for president. But it's also it's a war against Trump, against tax cuts and deregulation and energy independence and growth and wages and productivity. This is a war of big government socialism versus free market capitalism. I mean, let's be clear, you know, substantively what the policies are underneath that war. The Bidens want to stick with their big government and their regulatory state. They don't want to return. I mean, all these lefties, all these modern monetary theorists, all this woke economics nonsense, you know, that's what this is about. I mean, it's almost a war against prosperity, if you ask me. Yeah, and I would just add to that, Larry. It's also against a war against the kind of um, working class Americans who were really the the yes. um, base of the of the uh, Trump uh, voters. And, you know, these kind of liberal elite country clubbers and, you know, people give money to the Environmental Defense Fund and so on. They really do snub their nose at working class Americans and they think they're better morally and mm. uh, intellectually. And so it's offensive, actually. And we talked a little bit about this last week. But the irony of all this, the kind of war against Trump, is that they've actually kind of revived him. I can't tell you how many people I've 
talked mm-hmm. to who said, you know, I was sick of Trump, but, you know, they, if they hate him this much, <laughs> there must be something good about him. And, and you know, the record was, as you helped put together, you know, Larry, you played a key role. We had we have peace and prosperity. What's yes. wrong with that? Yes. I mean, actually, Trump's polls have gone up this week. But, you know, Liz, it's it's important. It's it's kind of a subheading, but, but we should not forget that they uh, – they have overturned or, or tried to overturn all of the policies that worked so well during the Trump years. You know, they ran against them. They tried to badmouth it. They kept saying they inherited a recession, which they most certainly did not. I mean, that is a key part of this uh, Mar-a-Lago invasion. Oh, I think that's right. I mean, Joe Biden's uh, administration is characterized by total... Uh, lack of coherence. I mean, he's constantly enacting policies that contradict their central theme. The only central theme, the only coherent thing about the Biden White House is, yes, that they want to undo everything Trump did. And the problem is, I I think what's so sort of stupid about that is people across the country may not like Donald Trump, but an awful lot of people will tell you, I don't like the man, I don't like his tweets, but I like his policies. Mm -hmm. And so they I think, you know, but the most obvious example is the border where Trump had uh, tackled a huge uh, influx of people coming into the country illegally and put in policies like remain in Mexico, which stemmed the tide and were working. Uh, and Biden just decided to undo all of those policies. And now, I mean, it's incredible to me that they just willfully ignore what is truly a humanitarian crisis at the border. I mean, you can have all kinds of objections to what's going on down there, but there are dozens of people dying every week who are trying to get into our country, children that are being abandoned, et cetera. It's a horror show, Larry, and they brought it on themselves completely willfully by undoing what Trump did. Yeah, I mean, that's um, part of going to DEFCON 5 at Mar-a-Lago is all about this. I mean, that's yeah. just, I just wanted to raise that uh, point. The other point I want to raise, well, two other points. Uh, I want to get to New York in a minute. But also, uh, Mitch McConnell almost bad-mouthing Republican yeah. candidates on the campaign trail. And I had Jim Garrity on National Review a, a, a little while ago. But really, what is this? All of a sudden, the country's in love with Biden, and all of a sudden, uh, all the Democratic Senate candidates are going to beat the Republican candidates because the country is enamored of Joe Biden and what he's done and his recession and his border and all the rest of it, Steve Moore? Really? What is this going on? This, this, I just saw another one from The Hill writing one about how the Republican candidates are all in trouble. And Mitch McConnell fueling this. I mean, some of these people running are they actually have very good private lives, very good business lives. Uh, Herschel Walker and J.D. Vance and Blake Masters and then Ron Johnson. I mean, come on. Ron Johnson's going to win. He's running against a crazy person. Mehmet Oz may be down in the poll, but he's, you know, Mehmet Oz should he shouldn't have talked about crudite. I'll grant you that. But the fact yeah. is, he's running against a crazy left wing person. Yeah. And so is Ron Johnson. And um, so is Herschel Walker, for that matter. 
Yeah, I didn't quite understand the logic of what uh, of what Mitch McConnell did there. And, you know, you think we've got that candidate. Look at theirs. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not exactly. exactly. I mean, who's the, what's the name of the guy running in Pennsylvania? He's like Fetterman. Uh, Fetterman, uh, is it? Or, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so those, you know, they, uh, the media keeps shining the spotlights on these Republican candidates. But but uh, they've got a, a lot of bad candidates, too. By the way, I will. You can take this to the bank, Larry. Ready? You can take this to bank. Ron Johnson is yes. going to be reelected. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He always runs. Be- Although he's not running that far behind. He was running 15 points behind uh, six years ago. But, yes, he is going to win. Um, J.D. Vance, he's coming he's around. He's up in the poll, Larry. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, I had Blake Masters on the TV show. He's a real smart guy. He's a businessman. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, this guy, Kelly. I mean, in other words, they all vote for Biden. So Biden's polls are in the 30s. So yeah. what's going to cause this Democratic renaissance? Let's speak. I mean, that's what part, I just don't understand. This is Beltway media craziness. It is Beltway media craziness. They have mm. taken the fact that they passed what is an atrocity of a bill, which, by the way, I thought you did a great job on today in the New York Sun, another horrifying bill that spends mm. billions of dollars on things that Americans don't care about. They've taken that as a win, and they're basically manufacturing a Biden revival here. Don't believe it. Joe Biden is right. not capable. People don't trust him. They don't trust this bill. As you point out, only 12 percent of mm. Americans think this bill is going to reduce inflation. And the name of it, for heaven's sakes, is the Inflation Reduction Act. You don't get any more dishonest than that, right? But, so it, this is just a manufactured story. But I have to say I'm not excited. I mean, uh, Mitch McConnell should be out there waving the flag, meeting people and uh, uh, campaigning for people in these states where the candidates are struggling a little bit. I think J.D. Vance is going to win. I think Herschel Walker is going to win. Oz is a very smart and attractive guy. And yes, he's not a uh, regular politician, but boy, is he running against a crazy person, as you said. Fetterman is way out to the left, and he may be kind of intriguing with all the tattoos and all this kind of stuff but guess what (laughs) he is bad news for america so i'm hoping you know the yankees are in a slump uh we're hoping they come back i think republicans are living a little mid-season slump i don't think it's over by any means steve moore joe biden says are you saying that we don't have zero percent inflation yeah yeah steve moore joe joe biden says he can't wait to go out on the campaign trail I yeah, can't I'd, wait for him to go I'll out on the campaign the tickets, trail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's going to come out of his basement or he's, his, what is he building, a $500,000 wall against his beach house? I mean, come on, Joe Biden's going to go out in the campaign trail. The question yeah. is, will any of the Democratic candidates oh, show up for the rallies? <laughs> Yeah. Well, look, I mean, if you look back at the two big wave elections that, you know, we've all lived through or most of us in 1994 and 2010, you know, those were uh, those waves really came in in the last three or so weeks of the election. Wow. I mean, look, most most people aren't paying any attention to these races yet. I mean, most people have normal jobs. They don't pay attention to politics every day. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, look, if you uh, I'll give you a statistic. A month before the 1994 elections, 32 of the top political prognosticators 
And 31 of the 32 said that Democrats would hold the House. Republicans ended up winning, what, 60, 70 seats. And the only one who got it right was the late, great Rush Limbaugh. Wow. That's interesting. That's interesting. It's amazing that in such a short period of time, the tide can change. I think, Larry, one thing that's interesting is the uh, Price Waterhouse survey that came out showing that a lot of people, a lot of companies are thinking about laying off workers. Mm -hmm. I think if employment begins to go south between now and the election, that's a big problem for Biden because that Mm -hmm. is literally the only thing that he can crow about. And he's making a lot of noise about how great the job market is. I think that's rolling over. So, you know, that could be kind of an October surprise. I can't wait for him to get out there on the campaign trail. Yeah. I can't wait. I mean, it's just going to be terrific stuff. And that's, I mean, I think Steve is right. Folks don't focus on this until the last couple of weeks. And then they're going to add up the balance sheet, the pros and the cons. And I don't think they, I mean, I think they want checks against the Biden administration. I think they want to check them. And right now you have a very unbalanced story in Washington, D.C. As per this bill, this bill, 5150 in the Senate, and nobody likes this bill. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a big thing. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about Liz's article, Republican can win for governor of New York State. It's probably the last best hope for New York. Lee Zeldin is running a good campaign, uh, and we will uh, slice and dice that. Liz is a Fox News contributor. Uh, Steve Moore from FreedomWorks on Committee to Unleash. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're here with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and Steve Moore. Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and his book is Govzilla, about the relentless growth of government. Um, Liz, so you got a beauty running, and um, a Republican can win in New York. This is certainly the year for it, and I think Lee Zeldin is the candidate for it. I think he's a very good candidate. Uh, he's smart. He's an attorney. He's a veteran who did military service in Iraq. Uh, he, he has all the right things to talk about. But here's the point, Larry, and I think I mentioned this on your show the other day or talking before it. New Yorkers, uh, Republicans in New York have this incredible defeatist attitude <clears throat> where they basically think the numbers mean we can never win an election. And I kind of go back in this piece and say, look, the numbers were equally bad, maybe not equally bad, but close to this bad when Pataki was uh, elected, when Giuliani was elected, and when Bloomberg was elected as a Republican. In those years, too, Republicans numerically didn't stand a chance. And what happened is that people got angry enough to go and vote for a change. And I think we are at that moment. New York is trailing the nation and other states in so many ways on crime, on the economic recovery, etc. And Lee Zeldin is good. He's been in Congress. He has a lot of accomplishments as a congressman to talk about for New York State. Kathy Hochul, by comparison, is a nitwit. I mean, she has basically uh, completely punted on the number one concern of voters, which is crime, Uh, not doing anything to rein in or fire Alvin Bragg and other DAs that are making life impossible for New Yorkers. I think this is an election that can be won. I mean, you have... Steve Moore, I don't know if you read the New York Post, but you have really daily in the New York Post, which is a fabulous newspaper, horrible, horrible stories about crime. And you have this issue of recidivism, 
where criminals attack, damage, maim, kill. You had another one the other day, and it turns out, you know, they, they, their, their record is, is an arm long. Their, their prison record, they're in and out of jail, and they get released after the crime uh, within hours. And I think that that's what will mobilize people here in New York State. And by the way, it may not only be New York State, but I think here in New York City and state. And Lee Zeldin is a strong player, Steve Moore. I don't know whether you've had much to do with him or whether you know him. Well, uh, by the way, first of all, I forgot to say, uh, you are now three-quarters of a century old. Oh, happy birthday. birthday. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Way to be. Way to be. Reagan Reagan was always 39. He was always 39. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to say something else that's completely unrelated to this subject. I'm at the airport right now, and... You know, the, the line for Chick-fil-A is, like, around the block. Remember when the left <laughs> said they were going to shut down Chick-fil-A? <laughs> it's it's right. the hottest time. It's amazing. Anyway, on New York, uh, you, you forgot to mention one thing, Liz. I, I agree with everything you said. They still haven't lifted their emergency um, yeah. declarations from COVID. I think mm. they're the only state <laughs> that's still under those emergency orders, which is actually dangerous because it gives the governor extraordinary powers to shut down businesses and restaurants. Um one thing related to what uh, what Liz was just saying, the two cities, you know what, the two cities in the United States that have had the slowest recovery in the restaurants? New York. And you know what the other one is? San Francisco. Nah. Mm. Yeah, uh, because they mm. destroyed the liberals love to destroy their businesses. So I'm with Liz. This is a very winnable race. And I do remember that Pataki race. Everybody said he couldn't win. And even on election day, he was down about five or six uh, points in the poll. And he, he beat a Cuomo, right? Didn't he? Mm. Didn't he beat Cuomo? Yeah, he beat his father. Beat Mario. Yeah. Beat, yeah. Ma- beat Mario Cuomo. That's right. It was a big, big upset. I mean, I don't know what it is, but, again, coming back to the Senate races and Mitch McConnell's pessimism or whatever, the, the country is going in the wrong direction. The economy is going in the wrong direction. Crime is going in the wrong direction. I, I think there's a turn them out. There's a populist revolt. I, I don't know why the mainstream media doesn't want to pick up on this. But the reality, <laughs> I mean, we have it here in New York. I mean, Liz, is anybody in New York, like, really happy with New York? Let's try I that. don't know anyone. Right. I haven't met anyone that, who's happy with what's right. going on in New York. How could anybody be? You're always looking over your shoulder. This is Anyone who was there in the 70s remembers exactly how it is. This is how it is. We're back in the 70s where you're looking over your shoulder, make sure someone isn't creeping up on you to hit you over the head. That sounds like a ridiculous exaggeration, but it is not. To your point, in the Post, every day, assaults on completely innocent bystanders are witnessed. They are recorded. Uh, The people sometimes are arrested, and they're out on the street within hours. It is horrifying what's going on and completely fixable with, with will the will to fix it, uh, and with the people in charge who want to fix it. So I, I think, honestly, why, why hasn't the mainstream media picked up on this? Larry, what's the result of all of us getting sort of down in the dumps and thinking our candidates can't win? Fundraising dries up, and that's already happening for a lot of Republican candidates. Uh, people say, oh, maybe I just won't bother to go vote, et cetera. It's very, very damaging, and that's what's happening. Yeah, but Steve, you know, wave elections... Wave elections will shock and surprise everybody. And what makes you think this isn't going to be a wave election? In other words, what if there's a lot of senators elected on the GOP line? Not just a couple, but a lot. 
What if the country's dissatisfaction with what's been going on manifests itself in ways that nobody can imagine? I mean, I would. I think there's just as good a chance that the GOP could pick up eight or ten Senate seats as there is that there will, you know, as Mitch McConnell says, it'll be one, one way, 5149, uh, one way or the other. I mean, waves come and they drown out consensus wisdom. We've seen this before. Steve, Steve Moore, we, I think we lost him. Anyway, Sorry, so- I was muted. What I was going to say is the, um, the, the, what polling doesn't take into account is intensity. And the intensity is all on the Republican side. Although the one thing that I think has hurt Republicans, frankly, is this is the uh, uh, abortion issue that that has yeah. uh, energized a lot of Democratic women. But every other issue is very much in the Republicans camp. And I'm with you. I, I, I actually do think this will be a pretty big red wave election. Uh, you know, pay, you're right too. pay attention to. You know, some of these governor's races. I mean, mm-hmm. Illinois could win. We could get rid of Putzker in Illinois. We could mm-hmm. <laughs> we could get rid of a lot of these crazy governors. Um, and so uh, another one to keep an eye on. Keep an eye on this race in Washington state where uh, mm-hmm. who's that woman uh, that the, 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 I forget her name, but she, she's terrible and she's in a the fight of her life. So I'm with you. I'm, I'm the Republican. Any Democrat in a you know situation where they're in a D plus six or less is in big trouble. You know, Liz, one other thing. Um, the nitwit is also corrupt. I just yeah. want to throw that yeah. in. She I is agree. absolutely corrupt with the Buffalo Stadium bailout, and her husband's going to get the benefits of it, and the Penn Station bailout along with the crime. I mean, she has a lot of corruption to answer for here. I agree. And what, uh, another aspect of keeping emergency powers in place, it means you've been able to award contracts without the usual competitive yep. building st- yep. uh, guidelines, which she has taken advantage of and handing out contracts to favored people. I agree 100 percent. At some point, people just have to say enough, enough of cheating taxpayers, because that's what you're doing uh, and and basically not playing by the rules. I I really hope uh, that we get some Republican energy in New York. Too many years have gone by where we had listless leadership. Uh, I think that's changing. Uh, and I really hope it, it, uh, we have tangible results from that. Uh, by the way, Steve, I got one here in Connecticut. Probably nobody believes it, but Leora Levy, a very yeah. energetic woman running against Richard Blumenthal, who was barely copacetic, who was one of the most far, furthest left in the Senate, who lies constantly on the campaign trail and has almost made a career out of it. There's an upset in the making here in Connecticut, Steve Moore. Oh, his not, mic's muted again. Go ahead, Steve. Feel <laughs> feel free to unmute and talk. <clears throat> what's, your, what's your take on the governor's race there in, in Connecticut? That's I winnable think too, isn't it? I, it is winnable because Connecticut is not in good shape. People are leaving the right. state. The, the state's economy is badly underperformed. Businesses have been leaving for a long time. Bob Stefanowski is running against Ned Lamont. Yep. I mean, yep. this. In other words, funny things happen in wave yeah. elections where you, you least it. expect them. That's all I'm saying is I can't make a prediction here, but I just think it's going to be very close. And, of course, the Hartford media, the, the mainstream media in Connecticut, is just laughing at Republicans, which in a sense I like because it means they're going to be caught completely unawares, completely unawares. Anyway, 
We'll have to leave it there, kids. Liz Peek, Steve Moore, both fabulous. It's a great day to be alive. I'm Larry Kudlow, folks. We'll see you next weekend. <laughs>